0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. Today we're presenting a special interview with Kyle Kalinske, political activist, talk show host. He's been the host and producer of the YouTube show Secular Talk since 2008, and he's almost reached 500 million views on his YouTube channel. Kyle's show Secular Talk is one of the more radical shows affiliated with the TYT Network, And he continues to debunk and push against mainstream prevailing narratives such as the Russiagate narrative that's been in the political consciousness for over two years. He is also a huge critic of YouTube's demonetization and censorship policies that have been largely associated and intertwined with this Russiagate narrative.
1: So, Kyle, we're super, super excited to have you on. Kyle Kalinske, host of Secular Talk. Uh, You've been someone that I've been following for uh, years now. You are one of the best people out there um, cutting through the partisan lines. Kyle, thanks for coming on Media Roots Radio.
2: No, it's my pleasure, and the feeling is mutual. I've been a fan of yours, too, for a long time.
1: Awesome, dude. Well, you have this hugely successful YouTube channel. You have a very loyal fan base, which really does seem increasingly difficult with this influx of information and also just the saturation of media content. Um, So before we get started, how did you get started covering politics and develop your show?
2: Uh, Let's see. So I started Secular Talk in 2008. I did it as a hobby. I was 20 years old at the time. I would just upload, you know, a video every now and then. It was usually, you know, somewhat political related or or like religion related. I think one of my first videos was actually on Glenn Beck, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think around 2010, so two years later, I started doing um, a, a radio show on Blog Talk Radio. And after a while, and I I went to uh, college, got a political science degree. And then after a while, I kind of like decided to sync the two together in a way. So I would record uh, a live radio show. And then later on, you chop up the radio show into little video segments and then you upload it on the YouTube channel. And uh, come 2012, I believe it was, I started doing, I I tried to do secular talk full time. And, um, you know, I got kind of lucky in a sense because it took off. And I guess it was just. Right place, right time, kind of thing, and um, you know I was able to make it work in the long run. But uh, that's that's the general story. I started out started out kind of as a hobby, and then um, decided to kind of saturate the market in a way. When I did it full time, I was like, I'm going to do this full full time. I'm really going to go balls to the wall. I'm going to upload like as many videos as possible, and um, been doing that ever since. Nice. Well, you're only
0: the only people, Kyle. I remember. I mean it, it seemed like there was a there was a rather large void like even on places like YouTube um back then um going back to like 2008 where I don't remember very many people putting out the kind of commentary you were besides maybe the young Turks at the time so um yeah I mean you were doing some extremely valuable stuff there wasn't really anybody I mean there were other people but I really remember, I mean, you've, you've been doing this for a long time, and um, since then there's been a lot of other people who have sort of come into the fray, but what I really appreciate about your work is that you you, you stick to your principles, and I know that sounds like maybe a low bar of, of some kind, but it's not, <laughs> because a lot of people haven't in this right. arena, and I feel that you have sort of stuck to your guns and, and remained very progressive, even as you put an enormous amounts of fire towards the Democrats, rightfully out Hillary Clinton, um, you know, and, and other figures in that movement, where I feel like um, other people have maybe gotten a little too obsessed with that and haven't been going after Trump. But you you do go after Trump at the same time. So I just want to say that I really appreciate that.
2: Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I I mean, I try. I feel like it's very... It just gets very boring and stale and hacky to just be a a partisan tribalist. And it's not entertaining. It's not intelligent. It's just like, okay, if you really want to see partisan hacks, you could turn on Fox News, you could turn on MSNBC. Like, you have your outlets for partisan hackery. Um, So for me, it's more about, you know, reading the news, finding, you know, picking what I find interesting and then basically having giving the facts and then having my perspective and sticking to it no matter where the conclusions take me and yeah i mean sometimes it comes across as um <laughs> as I, I don't know the right word for it i don't want to i don't want to suck my own dick here but revolutionary in a way to just talk mm-hmm. about you know kind of stick to your guns even when even when you might uh, make your own audience uh, upset by it so um I try to do that. I try to not be a partisan hack and I try to stick to my principles and just kind of give everybody my, you know, non-interventionist uh democratic socialist view on things.
0: Yeah, and and the name of your channel is Secular Talk. Um and I remember one of the first things I noticed about that was I I kind of almost mistakenly thought you might be like a new atheist <laughs> when I when I first saw the title of your show. So, explain how did atheism drive your politics and what and and just the difference between your atheism and and correct me if I'm wrong on that I'm assuming you're an atheist, but the difference between that and what your sort of your atheism and people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris who are, who are sort of taking over the new atheist movement
2: Sure. so there's sort of like an interesting uh backstory to this uh, i I don't know how old I was at the time. I was pretty young. I was in my teens. But I basically started reading. Like, I read all of those new atheist books, whether it be, you know, Sam Harris, The End of Faith, or Letter to a Christian Nation, or Richard Dawkins, uh, The God Delusion, or Christopher Hitchens. I read that uh, pretty much at the same time that I was reading Noam Chomsky, when I started reading, like, Noam Chomsky books. And so, yeah, the whole idea behind Secular Talk it was almost like an attempt to kind of bring together in atheist and secular philosophy along with, um, you know, a progressive leftist worldview. So you're right in, in bringing up like the name of the channel. It seems like it's got, it's kind of, it kind of has like a new atheist-y, uh feel to it. And, you know, at the time when I launched it, I kind of considered myself like a half, half a, a Richard Dawkins type character and half like a, you know, like a a Noam Chomsky character. So there were definitely, I was definitely influenced by all of those people that you just named. But of course, what's interesting is that over time, you know, there's been pretty much a a bigger and bigger rift within those two communities. You know what I mean? And um, Mm yeah, yeah.
1: I wanted to jump in here really quickly because it seems it is really interesting that you came from both of those worlds. Because to me, it seems like the biggest problem with Sam Harris and the arguments that he puts forward is it's too based on science and data and not anthropological or scientific in a in a sense, or not Chomsky esque in a sense where he's looking at the you know the context or the growth of these cultures, like how, you know, you can't just look at statistics and data alone and say this is the answer to everything. You have to look at how this this data came to be. So it's just an interesting mix that you came from both of those worlds. But what do you think about just that kind of line of thinking of of the Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, where, you know, Islam is the ultimate evil and, you know, our our morality and and our intuit, our, our intent is really ultimately what matters most.
2: Well, that's kind of what led me to uh, ultimately be significantly more in the Noam Chomsky camp than you know, the that camp is that um, they their analysis is not really sophisticated. And you know i had I actually spoke on my channel to Sam Harris, and I remember really trying to get to the brass tacks of what his beliefs are when it comes to foreign policy. And I just remember, basically, his only point that he kept reiterating in different ways is that, well, listen, if Dick Cheney had his druthers, he would want to make Iraq like Nebraska. Like, that's what he kind of kept saying over and over. And I thought, like, what a silly... (laughs) That's just such a ridiculous way of of viewing the world. It's almost like you can just brush aside all of the crimes committed by U.S. Empire and... And just kind of say, well, listen, I guess he means kind of well, therefore, you can't really look at us like we're the bad guy. But of course, if you go to the evidence, and this is something Noam Chomsky does better than anybody else, you find out very quickly, we do what we do around the world for natural resources, for money, for power. And the idea that on any level we're concerned about altruism or human rights or being the world, world police is honestly laughable. I mean, our top allies, uh, Israel is an apartheid state, you know? (laughs) Saudi Arabia is an absolute uh, theocracy and a dictatorship. The idea that, like, you can look at the way the United States acts and think, well, no, I mean, we kind of mean well, that's just factually wrong. And, you know, over time I, I saw the bigger rift in the the b- bigger rifts in these two communities. And, you know, I mean, Sam Harris, you want to talk about going off the deep end. As soon as you started being like open to the idea of race science, like with the whole Charles Murray thing, if you're feuding with Ezra Klein, something is wrong with you. That guy's like the most milquetoast neoliberal on the planet. You know what I mean? And you're he's trying to make it seem like Ezra Klein is unreasonable because he doesn't agree with Charles Murray or he's not open to Charles Murray's ideas. And the fact of the matter is, any serious intellectual or academic, it doesn't it's not that hard to see that what Charles Murray is doing. You know, it's like a very, it's barely trying to mask his bigotry and his racism with his work. So the fact that, you know, Harris kind of lumped him into the um, like, oh no, he's just not being politically correct. Like no, it's not that it's not that he's you know, factually wrong about the stuff he's pushing, and it's not that it's a dangerous path that he goes down. It's that, oh, no, he's just not politically correct when he talks about race science and when he says, like, hey, maybe we should totally uh, gut the social safety net because we can't help those uh, poor minority communities anyway. So, yeah, over time I have seen um, how far off the rails you know, somebody like Sam Harris has gone and ultimately why... Uh, I find myself significantly more in agreement with a guy like Noam Chomsky. Yeah, the race science
1: thing is is hilarious because they act like it's this forbidden knowledge that's been, you know, pushed back from society because it's politically incorrect. No, it's been debunked by scientific circles. That's why it's been pushed down, and that's why it's forbidden, because
2: it literally is a debunked, hoax science. And Ezra Klein presented that to Sam Harris in, like, the kindest way. You know what I mean? Almost like... Holding his hand and walking him down the path.
1: Trying a little too hard to be like. Yes.
2: Being very conciliatory and very much like, hey, man, listen, I'm a fan of you. Like, I like you. Like, I'm not saying like he was really bending over backwards to be really nice about it to Sam Harris. And it's almost like Sam Harris couldn't help but go to to the same thing he says over and over whenever he is in a position like this, which is like, you know, he plays the victim. You, you know, oh, I'm being taken out of context, I'm being misrepresented. It's like, stop, you're such a whiny baby. <laughs> I know, it's like, I just read an
1: essay from you, and it's like, you know, at what, what point am I not taking you out of context? <laughs> at one page, two pages, three pages?
2: Exactly. I'm not sure he's ever, you know, uh, engaged in a major disagreement with somebody and not walked away saying I'm being taken out of context and you're misrepresenting <laughs> me. It happens every single time and it doesn't matter how much like when I had that talk with (laughs) Sam Harris on on my channel a long time ago I was really trying to stress to him like listen dude I'm not your enemy like I've read your work I liked a lot of it but I was giving I was presenting genuine questions that I was interested in his answers about foreign policy for example And but he had this shield up the entire time and basically started the conversation by berating me for even bothering to speak to somebody like Glenn Greenwald. He went he went out of his way to say Glenn Greenwald is not even a journalist. Wow. Dude, he has a Pulitzer. Wow. who, Who says that? I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, that's. um. That's really funny, Kyle. And I, I actually forgot that you had Sam Harris on your show. And that's sort of fascinating that he would berate you because you would think as someone with the name of your show, Secular Talk, who knows that you've read his books would be more kind or or just like, yeah. you know, try, try to almost convince you where he's coming from. But it sound, sounds like he used the most... I mean, by basically saying that, oh, Dick Cheney would have turned Iraq into Nebraska, so he meant well. It's almost, I mean, it's almost cartoonish as saying, well, Thanos meant well because the reason he wanted to kill half the universe is to make the universe better. It's almost that ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and it's also, you know, the idea of like, and he does this with stuff like torture, like, well, theoretically, are there any uh, possible circumstances where maybe we should engage in it in order to save more lives? And it's like, well, do you not realize how these things are actually empirically used? Forget about theoretically. Look right. at yeah. empirically how it's used. I mean, we tortured people at Abu Ghraib. We tortured people at Guantanamo Bay. And when more and more information came out. And the more we learned, the more it was crystal clear we were torturing innocent people. I mean, we're talking about uh, Bush and Cheney cut a deal with Afghan warlords and Pakistani warlords after 911 and told them, "Hey, listen, you send us uh, people who are jihadists because we got attacked on 911 and we want to get them back basically and then uh, guess what guys it turns out uh, warlords from Afghanistan and Pakistan are not that trustworthy because what they did is they rounded up their political opponents and they sent them to us so yeah I mean most it, of them it, were d-
0: more dark-skinned you know Arabs because a lot of those people that we worked with were we're we're not so like a lot of the people ended up just you know it's like oh they you know they look like they look Arab or they look like jihadists so must yeah be a like the
2: idea of like Dick Cheney standing there like you know going through evidence to figure out whether or not this is somebody who we should really be holding no I mean we didn't give these people due process and this by the way this is just like a a clear example as to why due process is really not debatable it's non negotiable you need to have due process to make sure in any circumstance, that the government actually gets it right, you know what I mean? But also, the fact that we did torture, it'd be bad enough if we tortured and we did torture people who w- were terrorists, because that's still not okay, but we did it, and the people were freaking innocent, you know? So it, the idea that like you can intellectualize and theorize about these this stuff, when the empirical evidence points to the fact that we've become the monsters that we're trying to avoid, I mean, that's the thing I was never able to get over with with the guy, with a guy like Harris. It's like it's so flippant and dismissive about when we do fucked up stuff. You know what I mean? And just kind of brushing it under the rug as, well, I guess we mean well and we have good intentions. And that's just a, a, a terrible misreading of the situation. It's massively unempirical and it's laughable.
1: Well, yeah. And also just that everyone thinks that they everyone means well. I mean, it's really, really insulting to say that, you know, um, Al-Qaeda, to, to them, they are doing the right thing, right? I mean, every group means well and according to their beliefs and philosophy and the way that they grew up and, and whatever their cause is. So I just find it really bizarre, this American exceptionalism and basically um, empire ba- baby syndrome, I like to call it. These people are empire babies. They can't see outside of their own like entitlement. And um, also,
2: Abby, mm-hmm. it, I, I like to call it uh, American supremacism because right. that's effectively what it is. Everybody uses the term American exceptionalism. And for whatever reason, that, that has like a more benign ring to it. But really, another word for exceptional is supreme. Yeah. So we're talking about American supremacism. And that, that basically means, I mean, we're a nation that li- loves to talk about equality. Like, oh, everybody's equal under the law. But what's hilarious is at the same time that people talk about equality, they'll, they'll believe in American exceptionalism. Which is like, well, no, it's one or the other. Either you believe everybody's equal, or you right. believe America is above and better than every other nation.
1: Yeah, and then and then to to go along with the Sam Harris thing, it's like you are you're honestly like you know you claim that you're an atheist, and so these notions of like evil and good are are laughable and cartoonish. Yet you by default are almost like believing in the concept of evil because you're saying that the you know you're otherizing and dehumanizing these groups of people that you're like, well, they mean bad, we mean good. Um, therefore, we can carry out these mass atrocities on these other people who obviously don't have good intentions. I mean, it's just insulting.
2: He loves to bring, to bring up that I- intentions point. And he loves to say, you know, like, hey, well, if we don't mean bad, then you can't put us in the same moral category as actual monsters who mean bad. And my response to that is, is this. Let's say somebody leaves their house Uh, To go to school or to go to work on a Monday, and they run over somebody with their car totally by accident. They they didn't mean to do it, but it happened. Okay. Now, yes, it is true that under the law we have a different category for that. That's technically not murder. That's manslaughter, right? But what if that same person left their house on Tuesday, and ran over two people again? What if they left their house on Wednesday and ran over another six people? What if they left their house on Thursday? And ran over 20 people. What if they left their house on Friday. And ran over 27 more people. That is the United States empire right there. The idea like well I mean look. We don't really mean bad. But sure we increased drone strikes. By 432 percent in the last year. And we've killed thousands of civilians. And you know the list goes on and on. We're bombing eight countries right now. We have two full scale wars going on. In Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and we could talk about this stuff all day. The fact of the matter is when that body count keeps ticking up, it's not a matter of brushing all that under the rug and going, yep, yeah, I mean, it's we mean well, and it's better to have us <laughs> as a world leader than everybody else. It's like, no, have some frickin' principles. You need to have a principled stance against something like torture, a principled stance against something like waging offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. This stuff isn't that difficult. But you know, for whatever reason, To guys like Sam Harris, he struggles with it and he'd rather focus on, uh, you know, the crimes and the barbarity of other people.
1: Well, that's what is so weird to me is why other people do not have this kind of moral compass guiding them. It seems very obvious to me, especially getting sold the Iraq war in such a blatant fashion that I would not trust the corporate media and also just not trust the political establishment and the uniformity working between them to sell Every imperial, um, you know, adventure in the Middle East that that's that's costing all of these lives, Kyle. I mean, you are one of the very few people, like my brother said, that's producing good, hard hitting content that basically criticizes power in a nonpartisan way without getting swept up into that Gate or pro Trump hysteria. I guess my my question is, um, do you sometimes feel like you're the only sane person in the room? Because I feel like, you know, after the DNI report came out where I was actually listed inside the report as one of the reasons that we have Trump <laughs> um, and kind of this crude analysis of RT. And it's been been such a broad, all-encompassing term, the Russiagate, you know, notion um, that it's even hard to, like, pinpoint what are you even talking about when you say Russian meddling. And in all of this hysteria, your YouTube channel was hit really hard where you now actually have to play around with like words and titles in order to get your your content seen. So talk about what happened, why you think you were targeted and how you kind of wade through these mass hallucinations on both sides
2: of the political aisle. Oh, that's a that's a hard one to answer. There's a lot of reasons why uh, YouTube channels like mine have been hit. I mean, probably it it first it first goes back to uh, Adpocalypse. Now Adpocalypse was there was a story about, you know, like a mainstream ad for like Kraft or Coca-Cola or something somehow got on like a Nazi channel. And what happened was the establishment media took that and then ran a bunch of hit pieces against YouTube and tried to portray this as some like some systemic issue that YouTube hadn't dealt with. As if like all these Nazi and white supremacist channels were just you know swimming in money from mainstream advertisers, which is simply not the case. They had algorithms in place to prevent this from happening. So 99.9% of the time, genuinely hateful content is not getting any ads. But what happened was establishment media used that to attack YouTube. Then YouTube flipped out and basically totally cut funding to independent news and politics. Uh, for about a two-week period. Uh, so I was on some sort of a blacklist. I know David Packman and some others were on uh, some sort of a blacklist. And then we, after a while, we somehow got off the blacklist, but there was a, a funding cut of about 50%. And that 50% cut has been permanent. And yes, yeah, so what we have to do now is we basically kind of try to walk on eggshells and You see it in the titles of my videos, how I add some, like, weird symbols over the top of letters and stuff to try to skirt the algorithms. But, yeah, I mean, that's basically what we've been doing. I think YouTube is trying to be safe, and so they're not—they want to, like, just kind of blanketly disregard channels like mine. Um, But, of course, you know, the massive irony of this all, Abby, is who pushed for the Iraq War? That was mainstream media. You know, who pushes— fake news all the time. You know, that's a term that Trump uses, but guess what? That doesn't mean that it's objectively false. In many instances, it's actually true about how terrible uh, mainstream media is. I mean, Russia Gate's a perfect example. How many times have they pushed stories that ended up being total nonsense? Does that mean, will CNN have their funding cut as a result of this on YouTube? No, CNN, MSNBC, all their stuff is being pushed on everybody, more so than it ever used to be. You go back two years ago and you look at a video from CNN or MSNBC, they have next to no views. You look at it now, well, now YouTube makes it so that they trend and they get most of the ad money, even though, you know, a channel like mine in in an open, fair fight would actually crush those mainstream outlets. So, uh, yeah, there's been it's it's been rough uh, after Adpocalypse and with this permanent crackdown. And now YouTube is messing with the subs feed also. Um but to get back to the first part of your question, what was it again? It, do I feel like the only sane person in the room sometimes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just how do you um, wade, wade through these mass hallucinations? I
1: feel like it's either people who are just, f- you know, full-throated Gate, you know, Russia did this to us and, and not being able to see the forest through the trees, or just pro-Trump people who are like, Trump is fighting the deep state, uh, you know, that kind of thing.
0: The storm is coming.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I actually think in a way that that's actually a benefit for secular talk because yeah there, there's very few out there who are doing what i'm doing so it's almost like we should have a natural advantage because we're right. actually making sense That's a good point yeah yeah but yeah at the same time because of all the you know the issue with the new algorithms on youtube and the way that they try to tamp down on on our kind of content it does make it more difficult but i actually don't feel like the only sane person in the room, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work. I'm a big fan of Rania Colick. uh, You know, I'm a fan of Jimmy Dore. I'm a fan of um, Humanist Report, Rational and National. There's a lot of these people now who are, uh, you know, kind of rising through the ranks and, and having an impact despite the fact that, in many ways, the YouTube system is rigged against voices like ours.
0: Totally. And just, just a, a side note, um, I don't know if you've heard about this recently, Kyle, but uh, just along the lines of Russiagate hysteria, um, one one thing we didn't get a chance to mention um, in our last podcast because it happened in between was um, a journalist by the name of Bobchenko um, was yes. uh, faked wow. his assassination in Ukraine insane. and actually uh, p- pretended to die in front of family <laughs> members and the press And then he appeared a few days later as, hey, I'm alive, guys. It was actually a staged event because Russia was trying to kill me. And we were trying to sort of, you know, thwart their assassination attempt. So I just want to throw that in there because that's just how weird things continue to be is that the media ran with that. Oh, Putin killed another journalist. Now what are we going to do? Now what is Trump going to do? And then he's actually alive. He faked his own death. So
2: yeah, you see this with Syria too, like how terrible the reporting has been. I mean, how they bombed in Syria before we even knew, before there was an investigation about the alleged chemical attack. And every single media outlet, like CNN, called Jimmy Dore a conspiracy theorist because Jimmy Dore said, where's the evidence? I need evidence. And so, I mean, look at how warped that is. They totally flip it. The, The real conspiracy theorists are the people who are like, There was a chemical attack. It was definitely Assad who did it. it, And the United States should be responsible for bombing before there's even an investigation. To me, those are conspiratorial positions. Jimmy Dore is basically doing what everybody should have been doing, for example, in the lead up to Iraq. He's like, okay, where's the evidence? Let's see this evidence and let's be rational about this. And they literally called him a conspiracy theorist as a result of that and smeared him and compared him to a Nazi. Yeah, Yeah. and pedophile. Even
0: Kasparov, uh, Kasparov at the Oslo Freedom Forum a few days ago, on stage, singled out Jimmy Dore for the same reason. He brought up the Syria thing. So, just the fact that they would be that, those kinds of people would be that upset about Jimmy Dore questioning, it just really shows the power, I think, in just bang, bringing up these basic questions. So they're well, obviously I, very important.
1: I wanted to just say one really quick thing about the Syria chemical weapons attack. It, it, it's astounding to me because you're a Kremlin stooge and you're a Kremlin puppet if you just go and actually talk to Syrians there <laughs> or, you know, the doctors or the hospital people. Um, but then CNN can go and sniff a child's backpack on the ground and be like, yep, something definitely happened here. And that, <laughs> that's the proof to CNN, I guess. And it's just amazing. And it's like, how dare you even question what we're not investigating you know what, we're just telling
2: you. <laughs> the propaganda is so insanely strong because take a look at what's happening in Yemen. Now, what's happening in Yemen is happening with our money and our weapons, and we're aiding Saudi Arabia in what is effectively a genocide. They're killing women, they're killing children, they're blockading the country, they're not allowing food in, they're not allowing medicine in. You have just an absolute onslaught, it can honestly be described as a genocide. And again, that's with our weapons. Now, if, if we actually cared about human rights, and we cared about civil liberties and, and being the world police, why wouldn't thing number one on the list be don't arm the genocidal regime anymore <laughs> that's now killing babies? But instead, what happens? The media totally doesn't talk about Yemen at all but they feel responsible for pushing us to war with Syria, where, by the way, even if they did a chemical attack, let's just say for argument's sake, it was the Syrian government that did a chemical attack.
1: Mm.
2: What does that have to do with the U.S.? Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to do about it? I mean, mm-hmm. thats it's so pompous and arrogant. Like, OK, we have nothing to do with it, but now we obviously need to get involved. Why? Because we can't let those good weapons do- go to waste, man. We got all those weapons there. I mean, like, I, I always think about it like... in. In this context. What were they saying in Greenland when this happened? Like in Greenland, are they like, oh, we got to go, guys. Come on, what are we doing? We got to go. <laughs> No, because everybody understands, you know, that has nothing to do with you. And that's the, the rational approach. I mean, listen, I understand that there should be a ban on on chemical weapons. Everybody understands that. But we need to stop selling them to Israel and we need to, to stop selling them to Saudi Arabia. I mean, Noam Chomsky says it best. We are responsible for for what we do. That's what, that's what we can stop. There's an easy way to stop terrorism, stop participating in it. So you don't have to try to be a moral busybody to worry about the crimes of somebody else when we're committing a thousand. Just stop doing our own crimes. Stop selling the chemical weapons. Stop being directly involved in these atrocities. And that's how we make the world a better place.
1: Yeah, especially when we're responsible for the vast majority of crimes and subjugation for most of the world. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. I mean, look at um, when it comes to violating international law, there's nobody close to us. That's yeah. for sure.
0: What you were saying earlier, Kyle, about American supremacy, I mean, it's really the, the underpinning for how people could, you know, be so much more concerned about what Assad's doing to his own people uh, compared to like our own crimes. Is because our own crimes by default, are n- they're not crimes. They're done for altruistic reasons and they're actually to help people. So if we, if we commit some crimes along the way, trying to help people, like having to torture people, then that's ultimately okay because it's done. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very depressing how you're seen as some kind of anti-American hater if you spend most of your time in journalism focusing on American war crimes and crimes overseas, because that's what people should be doing, frankly.
2: So, And how terrible is the resistance? Because, <laughs> listen... This is These issues that we've been talking about, uh, they would never admit it, and they probably don't even know it. But these are issues that you could win an election overwhelmingly if you fought for these positions, and if you actually believed in it, and if you argued for it. And, and actually, Trump, to an extent, when he campaigned, Prove that. I mean, Trump was the only Republican that half the time he was like, Why are we in these stupid wars? We got to get out of these stupid wars. It doesn't even make sense. We need to rebuild our own country. That's what <laughs> we need to do. And, like, can you imagine a Democrat that's out there and hitting all the right points saying, We increased drone strikes by 432%. We need to stop that. We need to pull out of Iraq where we wasted $7 trillion. We need to pull out of Afghanistan where we wasted $2 trillion. We need to cut our 900 military bases around the world at least in half. And by the way, Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. And our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. So we have trillions of dollars to wage unnecessary offensive wars where we're committing crimes as opposed to taking that money and rebuilding our own country, rebuilding our infrastructure. I mean, this you could easily take this issue and uh, coast to a giant victory uh, for an election. But of course, the Democrats don't really believe this, because Chuck and Nancy tend to agree with Donald Trump with his worst ideas and his worst policies. They cheered on the bombing of Syria. They cheered on... Uh, you know the moving of the embassy uh to Jerusalem.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: Yeah,
0: Kyle, I wanted to ask you about um your continuing uh, coverage of radio personality, and he can no longer really be called a fringe figure anymore. Um, uh, Alex Jones. Uh, in a recent segment, <laughs> um, you you said that uh one of his recent rants was perhaps the most craziest Alex Jones rant ever where he actually says that college kids hate you if you aren't a pedophile, and they hate you if you don't worship Satan. And I I think I botched that a little bit, but it's pretty close to what he actually said. So do you find that he becomes actually crazier the more time goes on? And if you were to personally pick one of his craziest, most unhinged rants, like what would it be right now at this current time?
2: (laughs) Ooh. I don't know about that last one because there's just so many crazy ones. But yes, over time, he 100% has gotten worse and worse. There was a time where Alex Jones would actually half the time make sense because he would actually spend some time talking about, you know, NSA spying and how that's terrible and how we need to get out of Iraq and it's so uh, terrible that we're over there and we're only the elite are doing it for their own nefarious purposes and look at how much money Halliburton is making. Like, there was a time when he was against George W. Bush and he was against the neocons and he would hammer away on some civil liberty stuff. Now, of course, he put a heaping dose of crazy in there even when he was right half the time. But, yes, yes, over time, he's become... And this kind of happened to Glenn Beck, too. Over time, he kind of got, like, a, a little fundamentalist, like a little really uber religious. And like, I remember he did a segment where he said that Obama and Hillary, Obama and Hillary are demons. And, uh, we know that because they smell like sulfur and that's one of the key signs. I remember covering that, covering that story going, dude, you're going like full Pat Robertson on us here. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, over time he's definitely gotten crazier because he's gotten kind of fundamentalist, and then also now there's no consistency in his worldview. So I covered a story the other day how he he uploaded on his Infowars channel this like shitty dad joke that Ronald Reagan made. <laughs> I was just and gonna
0: ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, it yeah it was, please, wait, please explain tell us what about
2: this that. is really quick. <laughs> it wasn't even like funny. It was some so- story about how a Republican politician um, didn't have a platform. So, but he was at a farm, so he gave a speech in front of, uh, you know, a cow pie or whatever, whatever the hell, and <laughs> this is the first time a Republican gave a speech from a Democratic platform or something like that, basically saying the Democratic platform is shit.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and it's like, it, it, was wor- it was worded in a weird, hokey, dad kind of way, and, like, the title was like, Ronald Reagan devastates Democrats from the grave. <laughs> with, with facts <laughs> and logic. <laughs> and, and then the comments were like, the Gipper, oh my god, the Gipper, the best president ever. And it's like, well, hold on, man. I thought you were building a brand as this anti-establishment, conspiracy right. theorist, edgy kind of guy. And now all of a sudden, you love Ronald Reagan, who <laughs> is the epitome of the establishment in every imaginable way, and Donald Trump, the president, who has ultimately become the most establishment president I've ever seen. So it, you're not edgy, you're not cool, you don't even have consistency in your worldview, and you're fucking crazy. So yeah, I like going after him because it's just such a wealth of material. Like when I'm when I'm prepping for the show, um, you know, there's a lot of websites I go to and I'll read various articles on whatever the issue may be, healthcare, taxes, you name it. But then I'm always like, you know what, let me stop by InfoWars real quick because I'm sure I'll find something tasty here.
0: (laughs) Well, I love it because you're you're one of the only Alex Jones critics that I see doing stuff about him that goes after him for being a hypocrite instead of just being this total crazy, you know, kook that no one should take seriously. And I, I feel that that's actually really important to do because I feel that a lot of you know, even Democrats that I would run into back during the Bush era would listen to his show and get valuable information right. out of it. So so I just want to emphasize that what you're doing is really important because um, I don't think most people realize how much of a role Alex Jones has sort of played in alternative media going back to the Bush administration. And as you said, it's it's so inconsistent that he would be praising Ronald Reagan in any way, shape, or form um, when I remember him talking all about the neo-Reaganites and how Reagan was basically a neocon puppet. And this is and, and pretty much all of the people from, you know, some of the worst people from the Reagan administration ended up crafting the Iraq war. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting to see his evolution. And that's l- largely seems to have come from Roger Stone's relationship with Alex Jones. Um, yes. And I don't know if you saw this recently, Kyle, but... This was where I was like, okay, now Alex Jones is going to have to say something when, after Trump hired Bolton. And the very first segment he did about it was him and Roger Stone talking about how Bolton's a good guy. They didn't, they didn't mention anymore that he's a wow. neocon, um, which they actually Roger Stone had mentioned previously in the previous year. But now he was just this great guy who was a nationalist and he's an anti-globalist and he's going to clean house. And I was just like, wow, that's, that's really going far for Alex Jones. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He um, he on the night that Trump bombed Syria, he cried on air and he was against it. <laughs> but the very next day, he acted like that didn't happen. And he and he was totally back to being pro-Trump. And I was like, what a buffoon this guy is, man. I mean, it, it, he's such a sycophant. He's such a sycophant. And again, I mean, I made this point a thousand times, but how are you not? an establishment outlet now when you are arguing every single day in favor of Donald Trump, who has become the ultimate establishment president. So, like, you're not edgy. You're just a a, a crazy propagandist. And then also, I wanted to mention, I think he knows about our show, number one. Number two, he's not happy about us because yeah. he responded in a roundabout way. Um, when So I covered him. I think some other people covered covered this as well. Uh, and so, and it was, and it was, uh, uh, there was a tweet that went viral over this. But Infowars pulled down a video of one of their like young reporters who's just you know really bad at their job, interviewing this. Oh, the, socialist. the Venezuela
1: eat rats thing, where she was like, "Do you know they're eating rats in Venezuela?"
2: Yes, it was such a great like that. The socialist was so cool. She was just like, "Honey, I just want people to have health care." <laughs> <laughs> And, like, you could tell that they were just caught off guard and they didn't know how to deal with it. And, like, you know, the reporter was new and really bad. And so they pulled down the video. And so I covered that. And then Alex Jones did this segment where, like, he was like, we didn't, we didn't pull it down. I mean, what happened was they had put it on the wrong channel. And then I told them they need, that they need to upload it on the other channel. And it's not that we're not scared to show people here. We'll show you right now. And then after, you know, he shows the video, Alex comes back and, and keeps making the same, like, terrible points <laughs> and he was like this is what the left is Uh, the left is acting like we're scared to show this video I'll show this video and then of course he um,
0: blatantly lying
2: yeah and then uh, I I was like oh great this is another opportunity for me to cover this exact <laughs> clip and talk about how he just used the worst arguments I've ever heard in my life and so I did it so I think what's interesting about Alex Jones is that he just doesn't he he never has anybody giving him a reality check and like you know kind of letting him know like dude you're not that good at what you do like you're kind of bad and i feel like as soon as he gets that little bit of pushback he doesn't know how to respond and that's why i don't think he he mentioned he has ever mentioned us by name even though he knows that i go after him on a regular basis because he doesn't know how to deal with it how's he gonna deal with it how's he gonna respond he doesn't know how to respond to me yeah he doesn't doesn't know how
1: to respond to intelligent people that's for sure
0: and he doesn't know how to respond to informed criticism against what he's doing. He only knows how to respond to the people who pick the low-hanging fruit, I think. So,
2: yes, exactly. He went after Ben Shapiro recently and that I mean you want to talk about a a, a fight amongst losers. Uh, <laughs> so, but even in the way he went after Ben Shapiro, I I covered that segment because I was like, dude, there is there were so many ways you could have gone after Ben Shapiro. He was the biggest Iraq war apologist in the world. He says things that are nonsense all the time. But what did Alex do? He dropped like a bunch of hints in the segment, like just saying flat out anti-Semitic stuff. Like wow, he was like, get me, Satan. And he was like, "We need to, uh, we need to get Ben Shapiro to find Christ." Like he said stuff like that in Whoa. the segment. I'm like, "Geez, man! Like you're not even being subtle with it." So he, I mean, you're gonna make me defend Ben Shapiro in a clip? God, I hate you.
1: Well, this is what's so weird also, and I wanted to talk about the Alex Jones hypocrisy in terms of the um, you know, the right-left divide, how he, he always used to say the two-party dictatorship. Um, and now he's generated this hatred irrationally, obviously, because the left has no power in this country. But it's not just him. It's all of these alt-right figures who basically have fomented this vehement hatred viscerally of the left, the left. And they don't even know what the left is, because you saw in light of the Roseanne thing where... Roseanne's um, fired. You know, ABC drops her sitcom. And then and then conservatives and right-wingers and alt-right people are like, oh, you want to fire Roseanne? Well, we're going to fire Bill Maher. And it's like, you think we give a fuck about Bill Maher? Like, what is this, my birthday? Like, this is great. <laughs> Please get Bill Maher off the air. That's amazing. So what do you think about this whole kind of idea of of the left being generated as this this enemy from not only people like Alex Jones, but all of these
2: kind of figures? Well, you know, it's easy for them to beat a straw man to death. And that's what they do is they take like the most extreme examples of what they call the social justice warriors on college campuses with pink hair who are like fighting to disinvite conservative speakers. And they take this caricature of somebody on the left and they use it as like their go-to example of a representative of the left, as if people... On the As if, you know, people like you and I don't exist, people who are endlessly talking about, hey, maybe we should stop bombing eight different countries. Hey, maybe we should fight back against rampant income inequality where the richest six people in the world have more wealth than the bottom 50 percent of the world. So they they don't know how to substantively address people like us who are anti interventionist and who have like very solid leftist argument on economics. So what they do is they just bash a straw lefty all day and it's lucrative for them. I mean, that's how, Mm -hmm. you know, Ben Shapiro, that's one of the reasons why he rose to prominence is because when you're, when, when you spend all day arguing against some pink haired college doofus who wanted to uninvite you from a college campus, then he gets to walk away playing the victim and saying, Oh, they only want to shut me down because I'm so right about all these points that I'm making. So yeah, it's it's when you define your enemy as the silliest example uh, of somebody on the left, then yeah, it's it's easy for them to kind of gang up and just beat that straw lefty all day long.
0: That's such a good way yeah, to describe exactly, it. Really I mean good point. I mean, what you've just laid out, I think, is the crux of of what they're I mean, is is beautiful <laughs> summation of what they're doing. Um, and then you can even take it to a more extreme place, Kyle. And I'm sure you've been paying attention to this, like me and Abby have. But even saying that your opponents on the left are actually, in some cases, just, they must be pedophiles or or Satan worshippers. You know, like the kind of stuff that's, Alex yeah, Jones is Jones. putting out of that. That's
2: Jones 101. Yeah. <laughs> and that is,
0: and that is, I mean, it's frankly dangerous. I I have never seen. You know, we've we've been a polarized country for a long time, but that's a very dangerous place to inch the political dialogue to. I mean. To get to that level, so.
2: Yeah, you know, I think um, I, th- I I think their power is waning, though. I must admit, uh, when I say they, I mean, like, the alt-right. Because, you know, they had their, their moment in the sun with Donald Trump, and, you know, there was the height of the Pepe memes online and stuff. But I feel like, you remember when Richard Spencer did that uh, speech, and then people started giving the Nazi salute? I feel like that was the turning point. Or everybody was kind of like, oh, OK, so like they're not just trolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that that's what I thought.
1: Um, well, yeah, no, there's there's multiple things. I mean, the fact that people have convinced themselves that somehow Trump is this term anti-globalist. I mean, my brother and I talk about this all the time, but he's appointing literal CEOs of corporations. How is that not globalism? I mean, to me, globalism is capitalism. It's global capitalism.
2: Here's the best way to explain it where you can maybe even pierce through the far right-wing brain. Put it like this. Donald Trump is Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. That's what Donald Trump has become. And fundamentally, Donald Trump has always wanted to be Hillary Clinton because who is Hillary Clinton? Hillary Clinton is the epitome of the establishment. She is beloved by the establishment. And Donald Trump, every time he screams at the media and talks about fake news and all that, that's just him begging for a a pat on the head and a hug from the establishment and the elitists. And so this is why you have a president who, I mean, look at his tax bill. His tax bill was nothing but a giant giveaway to Wall Street and to the rich. I mean, and that's just one example. we We can go on all day here about the ways in which he served Uh, you know, the establishment. Look at his administration's packed full of Goldman Sachs. I mean, who are we kidding? This idea that he's anti-globalist or that he's anti-establishment? No, I mentioned it before. He fundamentally is the establishment. He's doing deregulation out the wazoo. You know, he's basically uh, handcuffing the EPA so they don't uh, get to protect the environment. Like I said with the tax bill, massive cut of uh, the corporate tax rate, for example, gutting of the estate tax. I mean, what we're dealing with here is the ultimate establishment president. And then the only difference is sprinkle in some mean tweets. Yeah, so like, exactly.
1: He's this internet He's not troll. diplomatic. Exactly. Yeah.
2: He's not diplomatic. He doesn't know how to, you know, be a smooth talker like Obama. But ultimately that's what he is. An establishment president plus mean tweets.
1: Yeah. And, and in terms of expanding the empire, I mean, you said it before, upping drone strikes over 400 percent, civilian casualties more than doubled. I mean, he already said he was going to kill families. He's carpet bombing neighborhoods. He wants to build up Guantanamo, stronger, bigger military. He sent more soldiers into Somalia that died regime change in Syria, Venezuela and Iran, constant fomenting to um, overthrow their you know, leaders there. Um defense contractor stock skyrocketing where he's on the phone as a de facto arms salesman in chief, hucking killer drones and surveillance drones. And then there's the whole hypocrisy about, you know, from the Democratic Party about arms and the NRA. Meanwhile, we're the largest arms dealer in the world. So it's just it really falls on deaf ears, Kyle. But but let's let's hone in on that idea of Trump being anti-war and and um anti-deep state and draining the swamp because Going off of everything that we know, right, that Trump himself encompasses the empire, he he really reveals the mask. I mean, he removed the mask of what the empire really is. And he's he's unabashed in this kind of bloodthirsty warmongering, especially with the people he surrounded himself with. Looking back at the 2016 election, though, do you understand how people got sucked into believing Trump was anti-interventionist and was going to drain the swamp? But also, now that we know that he has zero intention of doing that, how is it possible that even some libertarians like Justin Armando of antiwar.com have still convinced themselves. Like, I see these people every day still saying Trump is anti-war, anti-interventionist, and draining the swamp. I mean, this is a guy who fucking is trying to, to overthrow, like I said, where are they on Maduro? Where are they on Iran? It seems like these people are only anti-interventionists when it comes to Syria only.
2: I know this, I just threw a lot out there, but... No, yeah, that's just... It, for those people, Abby, I think... I guess it's just, like, wishful thinking on their part. I mean, that and that's me being kind to them, because I mm-hmm. could take the other approach which is they're massively ignorant or they're flat out stupid, you or know what grifting. i mean? Yeah,
1: grifting, but maybe yeah.
2: maybe it's wishful ignorance, but yeah, i mean i i always felt during the campaign that i had more sympathy for some of the trump voters than I had for like a Mitt Romney voter because Mitt, Mitt Romney was upfront about the fact like zero percent of Mitt Romney's message was populist on economics and anti interventionist. Right. Mitt Romney was the most standard Republican imaginable. So when I looked at everything he said, I looked at the people who were, you know, choosing to vote for him and I was like, you guys are just dumbasses. Like, but with Trump, yes half the time he made non-interventionist arguments and half the time he made populist arguments on economics like with the trade deals for example and he was uh, you know he said as a republican i'm not going to cut social security i'm not going to cut medicare so i had more sympathy for for the trump voters during the campaign than i would for any other republican who they might vote for but like you pointed out now the evidence is in now we know which side of this he's really on so i don't have sympathy for these people anymore i did if they voted for him and they thought they were going to get something populist okay i can see why you would do that um but ultimately you didn't get that so at this point yeah now i'm i'm at the same level i was with the mitt romney voters where i'm i'm ready to just look them in the eye and say hey dumbass wake up if you don't see what's happening here you don't want to see what's happening here
1: yeah good point really really good point
0: point. and it's strange kyle because on one hand um you have Trump sort of using um, sort of a conspiracy-minded conspiracy, conspiracy minded public to propel, um, you know, some of these ideas that the deep state is sort of what's behind the Mueller investigation. And I, I personally have mixed feelings about it because on some level I do feel like the sort of Russia collusion angle is some kind of a phony, you know, I hate to use the term he's using, but kind of witch hunt in and of itself, but... Yet when I watch people like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson and Rudy Giuliani all talking about this deep state coming after Trump and hearing them use the phrase deep state it makes me fucking cringe. And it's <laughs> and it's frankly it, it like it pains me to see me watching a Rudy Giuliani interview and then have to actually agree with certain things that he's saying and then yet I'm sitting there thinking well Giuliani's law firm used to represent Manuel Noriega during the 1980s. Giuliani has his fingers in so many bizarre deep state activities that to hear someone like him using the term is just honestly horrible. Um, it, it's, it's beyond cringeworthy. So I just want, What what is your take on that?
2: I have similar feelings to you on that. Like I have mixed feelings about like the, for the, with the Mueller investigation in general, what I always said is yes, at the beginning when they were like focusing on this idea of potential, uh, treason, and saying like, oh, Trump is Putin's puppet. I thought, that is such a ridiculous notion, and it's fundamentally not true, so I thought the the Mueller investigation was a waste of time. But then I saw a few articles after that which said, well, no, they've kind of expanded um, the scope of the investigation, and it's not really about treason or anything like that. It's really about looking into Trump's gigantic business empire and looking for corruption. And <laughs> To that question I go yeah you're going to find a, a lot of crimes in that realm and you probably should like I think Trump violated the emoluments clause on day 1 when you know when he became president I mean he has he does business in like 12 different countries and it's clear that these governments are like funneling him money in various ways. Like, for example, at his hotel, whenever Saudi officials come and stay at his hotel, they paid him like $300,000 to stay at his hotel. Now, why did they do that? That's a bribe. That's a preemptive bribe. You know, look at Israel. Israeli banks have given Jared Kushner like $30 million. So, if you're going to look for corruption, um, you're going to find it when it comes to Trump and when it comes to everybody who's around him. So, uh, on the one hand, yeah, I think Mueller, it's good that Mueller's doing this, and it's good he's knocking off people like Manafort and Flynn and probably Kushner and all these people. Um but then on the other hand, yes, the the original claim of like, oh, we're going after him for treason or cuz they think he's Putin's puppet even though he keeps doing policies that spit in Putin's face. It's like, no, that's just objectively wrong. Now, on the question of the deep state, yeah, you know, it's a weird thing. I think originally they were against Trump completely because They Trump was a wild card. They have they had no idea what he would do as president, no idea how he was going to act. And they kind of put him in the dangerous category in the same category that they put Bernie Sanders in the sense that, like, okay, he's dangerous to what they want, what the deep state wants, you know, what the CIA wants. Um, But what I don't understand is now he's proven over and over that he is going to do exactly what the military-industrial complex wants, exactly what Wall Street's want, what Wall Street wants. He's doing it what? I mean, they couldn't in their wildest dreams imagine they would have gotten a president that would be that would do this much for them. So, what I don't understand is why, given that scenario, they would still be against him. I mean, the only thing I could think of is maybe they still view him as a wild card and they view him as unhinged, and they'd rather have somebody who's like calm and servile to them so they might be against him but you know I, I really don't know I feel like there's probably a split in in the deep state in that m- many of them are pro-Trump and then some of them are uh, against Trump and I agree again on, on the Mueller point yeah I'm, I'm kind of with you in that the heart of it I thought was BS but what it morphed into it might actually make sense if they can nail them on just run-of-the-mill corruption or money laundering or something like that
1: yeah, I think that the the deep state quote unquote is definitely factionalized. I mean, there's obviously um factions. You know, there's the neoliberal faction, there's the neoconservative faction, and then there's this evangelical wing. So, it's it's cartoonish again to just paint, you know, the entire government or say like, oh, well the media hates Trump, therefore he must be good. I mean, no, what about Breitbart, InfoWars, Fox News? I mean, they all have their arms of the media apparatus that they use to bolster their credibility, but um the, the wing that is really interesting to me is the evangelical wing, because obviously we know that's who's benefiting the most from Trump being in there as the ultimate puppet for the Mike Pence's, the Betsy DeVos's, the Jeff Sessions and the Pompeo, frankly. I mean, this is a guy who talks about the rapture constantly, who scares the fuck out of his colleagues um, talking about the end of times. These people represent such a large swath of society, yet they never had someone like a Trump that they could hitch their wagon to. Um, which is why it's so dangerous, again, focusing on just how he's an Internet troll, right? This Internet troll. Meanwhile, what is he doing behind the scenes? What are these policies doing? The Fifth Circuit Court judges that are all from like the year 1500 who are pushing back policies that are going to take decades. I mean, these judges are going to be in there for decades. Um, So let's talk about some of the most dangerous people in the Trump administration right now. There's a lot. It seems like everyone is horrible or the worst version of whatever this position, you know, should be filled with. Um, to refill the swamp, so I don't know the evangelicals, the warhawks. What do you think is is the most dangerous aspect, and and maybe players?
2: John Bolton, by far yeah. and away, it's John Bolton. He by far and away is the worst in, uh, actor in the administration. Um, virtually all of them are bad. I think Pence is a super hawk. He might not uh, show those colors as much, but I think he is. I mean, this is a guy who credited his career to Rush Limbaugh on the floor of Congress. That shows you how rational he is. He questioned evolution <laughs> on the floor of Congress. Jesus. Um, Mike Pompeo said he thinks Edward Snowden should be executed. Um, you know, Gina Haspel is a war criminal and a torturer, and she's now the head of the CIA. I think all of these people are devastating. You're right in that um, some of them are are of the neocon variety, and other ones are neocons by virtue of the fact that they're evangelical fundamentalists and they actually believe in end times, but ultimately it's the worst of the worst in that room. I mean, I think I've said this before jokingly, but John Bolton makes George W. Bush look like Noam Chomsky because he he never, (laughs) he never met a war he didn't like. And he's always been the most upfront about, you know, among all the neocons, he's always the most upfront. Like, yeah, I think we should do regime change in Iran. (laughs) Like, yeah, I think we should uh, bomb North Korea. I think he floated nuking North Korea. Like, he just casually spoke about it. Right. So Like,
0: two months before he got in there, he wrote an editorial saying how we should preemptively strike North Korea.
2: Exactly. Right. And these are the guys who – and this is the thing about Trump is, like, half the time he said non-interventionist stuff on the campaign trail. But what Trump would do is he would say everything – and then just hope that you pick out whichever thing you like, and then you vote for him, you know. And I mm-hmm. think that Trump has shown over and over that whoever's in the room with him, telling him stuff, that who he that's who he ends up listening to. I mean, he did this with um, with pharma. He he spoke about how oh, we need to lower the uh, price of these prescription drugs, and then Bernie Sanders proposed that amendment. Of course, Donald Trump didn't support it. All it took was one meeting with the pharmaceutical lobbyist. One. And then he changed his mind and he said, no, we're not going to we're not going to try to lower uh, pharmaceutical drugs, uh, the cost of pharmaceutical drugs. So if that's what happens when he meets with one pharma lobbyist, imagine him in a room surrounded by Mike Pence, Pompeo, John Bolton, Gina Haspel and all those cretins. I mean, you know, it's it's the worst thing imaginable. And that's why, I mean, he ultimately pulled out of the Iran deal, you know, I mean. Yeah. It, it's, well, let's, you, let's talk it's about hard. that briefly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard I mean, to wrap your mind around how stupid that is. It's just hard to wrap your mind yeah, around is. how terrible is. that is.
0: So when Trump pulled out of the JPOA, I mean, what was what was your general reaction to that and how much movement do you see in the Trump administration right now in terms of, you know, potential war with Iran, or at least rolling back things um to the you know George W. Bush era? Yeah,
2: I think there... I honestly think that people like Bolton are working behind the scenes and they're just looking for an excuse to start a war because there's no reason. I mean, when you have the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, coming out and saying Iran uh, followed the is following the deal and we verified it 10 times, when they come out and say that and you decide anyway that we're going to pull out of it, well, you— they. It, I mean, the only conclusion I could come to is the U.S. is simply not interested in peace, you know? Because then they they make these disingenuous arguments like, oh, this deal made us that Iran was definitely going to get a nuke. It's like, what? You just (laughs) made that up. Like, the deal says the exact opposite, number one. Number two, even without that, Iran has kind of been forthright and upfront about the fact that, well, we don't really want it. And, you know, the Grand Ayatollah is like, we think it's un-Islamic and all that. So there was literally no reason to believe that this is going to help them get a nuke or something like that. But they keep making that disingenuous argument. And then they do something, which actually makes it much more likely that Iran would decide, like, okay, we're going to get a nuke. And by the way, how the hell can you blame them if they wanted it for deterrence? I'm not saying they should get it. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But if you look at the United States and what we did to Iraq, uh, what we did to Saddam Hussein, what we did to Gaddafi, I mean, that you know, that's the only thing that could serve as a deterrent. So they pull out of this deal— Where Iran is following it. By the way, we had already violated the Iran deal because we passed sanctions. I mean, we didn't have, all we had to do was give them back their own money under the deal and not sanction them. And what did we do? We sanctioned them. The deal, uh, they were following it. It had been verified 10 times. And so the only reason for the United States to pull out is because they're looking for an excuse to try to do regime change. And I think that's what's happening. And how many times have we seen this? This is what they do, this is the MO. You know, they they'll look for an excuse to do something like that.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. This might feel like a a slight bit of a a segue. That's odd, but I really appreciate all of your economic analysis, and I and I really want to get this in there for our listeners because I know that we focus a lot on foreign policy, and just considering the fact that um you know the the top one percent basically seized and siphoned I think eighty five percent of the um, economic recovery. Since the 2008 collapse, you know, and how Republicans basically belittle progressives for saying single payer is this pipe dream, you can never have it. Um, You know, it's completely outlandish to think that this could happen in America, let alone, you know, or in California, let alone the rest of the country. So I don't know. I know you've done a lot on this. What is your response to that argument that it's just it's just too outrageous to consider doing single payer in a country like this?
2: Uh, My response is it's too outrageous not to do it. I mean people who make that argument are are fundamentally ignorant of the reality of our healthcare system versus the various healthcare systems of uh, the rest of the industrialized world because we are the only developed country that does not have one version or another of a single payer system and I mean any argument that they come up with all you have to do is scratch beneath the surface and you go oh They're just totally objectively, factually wrong about what they're saying. So, you know, probably the main thing that they'll go to is "Ah, we can't afford it. It's so expensive. Mm -hmm. We can't afford it. Now, you know, somebody like Adam Johnson um, from FAIR, he's not wrong when he says, well, listen, we need to reframe that argument and let them know that the cost is irrelevant. It's we need to frame it as a moral issue because it is a moral issue. You know what I mean? Like, okay, it doesn't matter if it's expensive this is still the right answer. Like, nobody asks when it comes to war, like, hey, how much is that? Because it's portrayed as, well, it's just something we have to do, so we'll right. worry about all that later, you know what I mean? But, you know, I've always been of the, of the mindset, if, you, if you, you can fight the battle on their terms and still obliterate them, so why the hell not do that? So the reality is, we would actually save $17 trillion over the next decade if we move to a Medicare-for-all system. Because it's the way the way the system works right now. I mean, there's an unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit middleman that price gouges everybody. So if we just get rid of that middleman and have a single-payer system, and then of course you get, I mean, single-payer systems, even putting aside the rapacious, unnecessary middleman, it still costs less, and they cover everybody in these different countries, and they have better health outcomes. So you know, this is one of those things that um, it's a very It's a very American thing to even bother debating this because basically all the evidence is in we have solid, conclusive answers on this. And basically the only thing that's been dragging us back, uh, it's the right wing propaganda in this country, but also the fact that at least half of the Democratic Party, the so-called opposition party, uh, isn't even in favor of it. Because they like to do, you know, they're technocrats, they're neoliberals, they're they're tweakers. You know, it's like, well, maybe we could expand it if we do these new rules. And if we implement the old right-wing Heritage Foundation individual mandate plan, which is Obamacare. And if we keep the root of the system, a for-profit health insurance system. So that's the real problem. The problem is every Republican is against it. Uh, it, I should be clear, every elected Republican is against it. Because actually a plurality of Republican voters are for it. Um, and half of the Democratic Party, the elected Democrats, are against it. Meanwhile, 61% of Americans are for it. And think about that, Abby. They're for it, and they're not even, they're not even really all that well-versed on the issue. Right. So right. what does that tell you that if you had people making the argument all the time, strongly, like that number would be, it would be like a universal background check number, like 95% of Americans would be for it. And the, and and of course, we live
1: in an oligarchy that's controlled by corporations. So it doesn't matter. There's that 30% cap. It doesn't matter if Americans want something or don't want something. There's still a 30% chance of it passing. It depends on if the corporations want it or not. But I mean, Americans not only pay more than the rest of the world for healthcare, care, um, but like I said, I mean, so many trillions of dollars just being squandered and wasted not only on wars, but just being siphoned by the 1%. Um, and it just seems it just it's just so so absurd that we just can't have nice things. Right. And Dianne Feinstein, who is somehow still the senator in this in the state, the most progressive state in the entire country. And she claims she's like, I support a single payer system. Right. But when that health care bill passed in California a couple of years ago, she rejected it and she rejects single payer. Actually. Um, and, you know, a feasible single payer system. So it's just these fake progressive fronts that when you get down to the brass tacks, they really don't support these issues. But it's just all couched in this rhetoric that they really do. So again, to your point that people actually have no idea. And if they did know, it would be a 95 percent support in this country. I think that this really comes down to the nature of the Democratic Party, because you again, you, you have not shied away from criticizing Hillary Clinton and obviously brutally criticizing the Democrats. And, and as well, you should, I mean, everyone should because they really do, you know, they've embraced corporate power to such an extreme. I mean also just kind of hijacking this revolutionary language and identity politics to, to sell neoliberalism and corporate power and protect it. Um, But you also co-founded the justice Democrats, which is essentially trying to change the democratic party from within electing progressives um, into democratic seats across the country So I'm coming from a more cynical place where I feel like the Democratic Party is is, you know, they are doing exactly what they are designed to do, like protect corporate power and continue corporate power. Um, You are more optimistic where you think that it's possible to change it from within. So let's let's talk about that. I mean, why do you think that it's worth saving? And also, how do we save the Democratic Democratic Party at this at this point in the game?
2: So I disagree a little bit with your framing there. I think that, um, you know, I'm one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats and we chose Mm. to go down this path more as a matter of necessity than anything else. So let me explain what I mean. When we were, uh, launching this, this, you know, this plan here to try to take back the Democratic Party and overrun it with basically Democratic Socialists, um, We of course the first question that we all brought up and discussed was, okay, well, why would we even do that when we could just start a third party? Like that would be a better idea. Let's just start from scratch, and you know, it something feels more pure and feels cleaner and feels better when you do that. It's like Mm -hmm. just leave all this other BS behind and let's just go down this path. Now, here's the problem. Uh, Basically, the number one problem that we ran into. It's very simple ballot access. Mm-hmm. So if you try to do a third party, to say that it's rigged against third parties is the biggest understatement in the planet. It's more than rigged against third parties. I mean, they're, they actively just block the idea of third parties from taking over. Now, even despite that, I've kind of been clear from the beginning of this whole process that um, I- I've told my audience, listen, if I lived in a state that, that had open primaries, I wouldn't be registered as a Democrat. I would burn my fucking Democratic registration card immediately. I would totally be an independent in the blink of an eye. So I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, against third parties. I mean, I mm-hmm. voted for Jill Stein. I live in New York. I voted for Jill Stein in the 2016 election. So I support independents who are for progressive uh, policies. I support in, uh, I support uh, third party people who are for progressive policies, I'll support Democrats who are for progressive policies. Hell, even if there's an odd Republican who is running on the policy ideas I like, I'll support it. So as a matter of principle, I'll support people who believe in the policies I believe in across the board. But it was simply a matter of just sheer pragmatism that even when you look at the Green Party, for example, they don't have ballot access in, like, two states, you know? Like, they've got, I think, in 48 states, they don't have it in, like, two states. And then if you were to try to start a third party from scratch, uh, it would be even harder. Like, don't get me wrong, Abby, it is massively rigged against progressives mm-hmm. taking over the Democratic Party. Like, we're not blinded about that either. Like, we we see what the DCCC is doing. We see how bad it is. So it's rigged against uh, us, too, don't get me wrong. But basically, our analysis when we did the math and crunched the numbers at the end of the day was— it is slightly less rigged against taking over the Democratic Party. In other <laughs> words, we think with sheer numbers we could just overwhelm the establishment and take them out that way, um, than it is if you were to try to do it the third party route. So, you know that that was my general breakdown. But you know the final point I'll make about that is I actually think there's too much made of this debate anyway because mm-hmm. uh, what I find is that whenever I talk to anybody about you know this debate. When you get down to it, everybody kind of says the same thing, which is, hey, listen, man, I'll support I'll support people wherever they are, as long as they're for the policies I'm looking for. And those policies, of course, are, you know, uh, single payer and the wars, living wage, free college. And we can go down the list here, legalize marijuana and the drug war, yada, yada. So uh, I find that everybody pretty much agrees on this anyway. And there's just a little too much of this debate made in the first place. But it was more of a tactical thing than anything else.
0: I guess this is just a little bit more of a superficial question um, about, about the uh, 2020 election, Kyle. But do you think the Democrats have a snowball's chance in hell of running an exciting candidate against Donald Trump? And I, I just mean just running someone exciting. I don't I'm not even talking about winning yet. You can answer that separately, though, if you would like.
2: Yes. Um, it's going to be Bernie. It's going to be Bernie. Um, and he's going to win. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. It's going to be Bernie's going to win. Um, you know, in some weird alternate universe where he doesn't run or doesn't win, then it's a, it's bleak. You know, you're not looking at a... It, it's, it can get ugly, because then you're looking at, oh my God, a who's who of corporatists. You know, you're going to have Joe Biden, you're going to have Kamala Harris, you're going to have Cory Booker, you're going to have Kirsten Gillibrand, and you know, you go down the list of people who are not convincing at all in their progressive tap dance and people who are uh, slightly more convincing in their progressive tap dance, but ultimately they're all corporatists. So yeah, as long as, um, it's Bernie's election to lose basically that that's my view of it because he, he understands more than anything, how to destroy a guy like Donald Trump. I mean, even in the last election in every poll they did, he was up massively on Trump. I think it was like ultimately like 11 points on average that he was up over Trump. And mm-hmm. what he does is he neutralizes everything about Trump that people find appealing. So the thing about Trump that was appealing is that like, hey, man, he's like a wild card and he sounds anti-establishment. And he like he's going to be a wrecking ball and maybe he'll fight for us. Well, now we know that he's not going to fight for us. He's not fighting for the people. So... When Bernie steps up and he starts making all these anti-establishment noises, well, guess what? Then Donald Trump's anti-establishment noises don't sound as convincing to people when you have somebody who's actually anti-establishment on the stage. And then what does Trump have once you take away that from him? He's got nothing. He's a fucking reality star host. He's got weird insults and, like, punchy short sentences. Bernie doesn't care if you insult him. He's a 1,000 years old. He's got bad posture. You know, he doesn't give a shit. You can insult him all day long. He'll be saying... And they're talking about single payer and Medicare and uh, raising the minimum wage. So it's his election to lose. But yes, to if for whatever reason it's not him, oh boy, look out. Because you're going to have the smuggest Democrats in the world who are like, well, obviously Cory Booker is going to be Donald Trump. Oh no, he just lost. Because <laughs> that can happen. He, Trump has a chance at a second term. And that's something virtually no establishment-minded Democrats would admit right now.
1: But don't you think that the establishment Democrats are dumb enough to actually do a complete repeat of the two thousand and sixteen election and and just do everything in their power to sabotage Bernie's campaign because we know that his economic policies would ultimately threaten them more than essentially a fascist would,
2: yes, but he Bernie is at the at the place now where he can trump the Democratic right. Party. I right. mean and he has a name recognition. Of the world, yeah, exactly in both senses of the word. He's going to trump them like Trump, <laughs> trump the Republican <laughs> party also trump them as in, listen, the thing is, when he ran the last time, not that many people knew who he was. I mean, he started out with 6% in the polls. And then, you know, he made up this giant gap. He won 22 states. He won 47% of the vote. He wasn't covered at all in mainstream media. And they fucking rigged it on him. And he still was able to get that far. Well, now he's already entering as the favorite and the most liked politician in America and he's an A-list celebrity. He's been all over the place since then. So the thing is they they don't even realize it now but they they let him in the house. Like the the mainstream media now let him in the door. And he's in there and he ain't going anywhere else. So he starts with a with that advantage and then from there on it's just going to be just a giant wave. And what will happen is the same thing that happened with Trump and the Republican Party. Remember, you have to remember what the Republicans did to try to defeat Trump. At first, they were like, huh, we got it. We'll go with a serious person like Jeb Bush. <laughs> and, then they went, and then they were like, okay, okay, fine. Jeb's not working. Marco Rubio. And then they were like, ah, shit, Marco's not working either. All right, we'll suck it up and go with Ted Cruz. And they tried everything, and they couldn't take him down. Well, that's what's going to happen most likely this time. Right. With Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary.
1: Let's hope you're right. And before Trump won, I thought there's no way that Trump will win, not because I didn't think that voters wouldn't vote for him, but I thought that the system wouldn't allow him to take over. Um, but, you know, apparently we live in a more free country than I thought in terms of uh, the voting system so I think I mean it is possible if we come in there you know with Bernie already having the name recognition and having that celebrity status and let's just hope that he really uh throws his hat in the ring because if he doesn't we're in for a fucking wild ride you
2: know I could um I'm gonna brag here for a second If whoever's listening to this, do yourself a favor and go back and look at some of the coverage I did right when we learned it was going to be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, because I was sounding the alarm bells from a mile away.
1: Really? I was like,
2: listen, listen, this is the worst case scenario. (laughs) And my reasoning was, even though he's crazy, even though he's a buffoon, even though he's a reality star, the bottom line is he sounds like he's more against the system. And Hillary Clinton is going to try to run the old school 1990 style mm-hmm. campaign that her husband ran of like, I'm a new Democrat. I'm a centrist. I'm a moderate. Look at me. I'm so reasonable. And everything you need to know about the way their campaigns were run. I mean, look at their freaking slogans. And look at when, when he said, we're going to make America great again. And Hillary said, America's already great. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. you fucking idiot. Right. Right. That is the worst thing <laughs> you could ever say when you have, you know, working families that have just been destroyed in the middle of the country because of NAFTA and all these trade deals outsourcing their jobs and people locked up because of the crime bill that she was in favor of. And like that is just and then, of course, what, what does she do other than that? I'm with her. Oh, wonderful. Because, yeah, that that'll that'll convince people She's basically screaming, I have a vagina now vote for me. That's real fucking convincing, isn't it? So I I knew there were just so many signs that it was going to go bad.
1: Yeah, and then the whole um, look at the other guy. I mean, just we're not Trump, so you should vote for us. But it reminds me of how I interviewed Larry King or Larry King interviewed me once. And he was like, why are you walking around so angry all the time? He was like, look at People are walking around smiling. And I was just like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? I was like, do you ever leave like Chelsea, Manhattan? Like, do you ever fucking go to the rest of the country and, like, look around, man? And I think that that's really epitomizes Hillary Clinton's logic there. Everything's great. Like, what are you guys talking about? I mean, she didn't even bother to go to the Rust Belt where she lost these states. We know that. I mean, she lives in this goddamn bubble. And I think a lot of these people do who are obsessed with Russia, Russia, Russia.
2: They can't see what's right in front of them, Kyle. And, and they pop champagne on election day. Before the votes started Imagine. rolling in because they were so convinced she was going to win. Imagine. And that's ex- that speaks to exactly what you're talking about, which is that in her world, which is the D.C. elite circle and the Wall Street circle, so among wealthy people in New York and D.C., there wasn't a question. They all are in favor of her. So she got the misimpression that this is what it looks like around the country. Yeah. And like everybody thinks she's glorious and she's wonderful. And oh my God, it's going to be so historic because a woman's going to win. And But no, everybody saw through her and everybody knew that, you know, she's voting for her is voting for the status quo. And people couldn't stand the status quo. So they'd rather roll the dice on a lunatic than go for the safe thing that's guaranteed to not help them. But but she's a
1: prop comic now, Robbie Remember, she had that Russian hat on.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, she's been one for, even during the campaign, I was just going to say, she to show how much she was in touch with the sort of general public, she pulled out the hot sauce in that one radio interview. <laughs> oh, God, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: And, uh, uh, while she was on, uh, you know, a mostly black radio station. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Oh. So it's uh, just, I uh, guess, clearly. and then the, the other thing, I mean, it's like, not only was she so out of touch, it's just... And you know she's just not likable to people yeah, as well. That's, it's, a, it's true. Yeah, that's just something that people, you know, even the resistance will never talk really about how likable she is. You know, they'll yeah, just talk about all these accolades yeah. she has because they can't even say it. Unfortunately, you know,
2: it really <laughs> does drive me crazy the focus of the Democrats because, like you, like you said, Abby, it's just. It's Russia, 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 nonstop Russia. And then every now and then they'll sprinkle in some Stormy Daniels. And then every now and then they'll they'll sprinkle in. I love this one. They use this nonstop. Uh, Donald Trump, another person has left Trump's administration as if like high turnover in the administration <laughs> is something that's like overly compelling. Like imagine for a second Bernie Sanders was president and we're a year in and there was high turnover over in his administration. How f- Few shits would you give about that? You'd be right. like, I do not not even close to caring. So they they have this thing where like they gravitate towards the least convincing arguments ever, even though there's just a plethora of substantive stuff to go after Trump for. I mean, on Trump's first day in office, he repealed what was effectively a, a middle class tax cut for first-time homebuyers. Like that has All of the framing that could kind of like pierce through to every imaginable kind of voter. Like nobody wants to you know, raise taxes on like working class people. But Donald, that was his first move as president when he's running on the we like tax in the we like tax cuts party. And I didn't hear a single Democrat talk about it. The only I saw an article about this in The Intercept, but not a single Democrat spoke about it. And that's what they do. They're not like the thing is. They are not, like, news junkies like we are. They're not policy wonks like we are. They don't really care about this stuff. They care about power and self-aggrandizement. And then, of course, they're funded by corporations and Wall Street, the military-industrial complex. So they have these perverse incentives also. And it's basically just the perfect storm that leaves us with monsters like Donald Trump in charge and a totally toothless resistance.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself. Kyle Kalinsky, everyone check out his channel. Follow him on Twitter at... Kyle Kalinske, is that your Twitter handle? Sorry, man, I didn't, I'm not looking at it right, right. now. Is, it, is secular? it secular? Yes,
2: at Kyle Kalinske. Okay, yes, sorry about Kalinske. that, Even my bad. Secular talk is the other <laughs> thing, like their two names, whatever. Everybody, everybody will find it.
1: Yeah, just Google Kyle Kalinske and follow all of his stuff. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. That was super fun and really informative. And um, yeah, man, I just really appreciate you going out there and, and um, being a really, really rational voice through all this noise.
2: Well, thank you, Abby, and thank you, Robbie. I appreciate it. And you guys keep up the great work. Thanks, man. Thanks, Have a great Kyle.
0: Day. And and just uh, one one last thing, I want to ask you, Kyle. How often do you put segments up on your YouTube channel?
2: Um, I it's usually about thirty videos a week.
0: Wow. Nice. Okay. Wow. A lot of content there for people to check out. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kyle. It was a great time. Thank
2: you. You rock, man. Peace. Peace.
0: If you liked what you heard today. Please consider donating to Media Roots Radio via Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash media roots radio. Thank you very much.